Hello, everyone, and welcome to this all-important session um, on using COVID-19 therapies to help the most vulnerable. Um, my name is Nicolette Lewis-Saint. I serve as the Executive Director of Healthcare Ready. It is my pleasure to be with you all this afternoon. I'm really glad that we are able to take this hour and have a conversation about how we can use COVID-19 therapeutics, um, recognizing that um, there's tremendous opportunity as the pandemic is still not behind us to make sure that we are doing everything we can to ensure that individuals who have been recently um, um, infected with COVID-19 and recently tested positive have access to the therapeutics that can have a tremendous impact on their health outcomes. And so as we are going to use this next hour, we would like to first re reflect on past opportunities um, or missed opportunities, but also focus on solutions for the next phase of this pandemic. Um, as the vaccination rollout continues, um, there's a need to both balance how we are pushing out vaccines, but also recognizing that not everyone has been vaccinated. Um, and there are a number of counties across the United States um, where there is a continued increase of COVID-19 cases. And we have to do the work of increasing the availability of those therapeutics to those hardest hit communities. Um, one could look no further than the, the current impact of COVID on the state of Michigan to understand the work that we have ahead of us. So I'm very pleased to be joined with two experts who've been diligently working on COVID-19 um, and um, very, very aware of the opportunities we have to make sure that um, we can really help vulnerable communities with that increased access to these therapeutics. Joining the panel discussion today, um, we will also have um, a demo from um, one of NMQF's own, um, Mr. Taylor Stair. So I'm first going to read their bios um, and introduce them and then I will turn to Taylor for the demo. First, we have Maya Birmingham, um, who joined Regeneron in 2015 and serves as the Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs. Ms. Birmingham and her Washington, D.C.-based team play a critical role in helping Regeneron shape and maintain its industry-leading reputation among governmental stakeholders. Prior to joining Regeneron, Ms. Birmingham held roles increasing responsibility at Pharma over her 12-year tenure, following earlier positions at legal firms and work for Sen Senator Moynihan and the Senate Finance Committee. She is a graduate of Harvard University and the U New York University Law School. Dr. Gary Wiltz is a board-certified internist who has been employed with the Tesh Action Center for over 30 years, serving as medical director from 1982 to 2002. In 2003, he was named CEO of the organization and serves in that capacity to date. He's a graduate of Tulane Medical School, and he has served on many local, state, and national healthcare committees, including two governor's healthcare reform projects, he is the LCPA clinical director, secretary, treasurer, and most recently has served as the chair-elect of the National Association of Community Health Centers. Taylor Stair is a data analyst at the National Minority Equality Forum who joined in fall of 2019 and has been working with Dr. Puckering and Mary Murray in developing NMQF's various indices since joining. With the onset of COVID-19, Taylor has been managing the backend data being generated by the MRCIS COVID study, which is being conducted with FQHCs across the United States. Throughout this study, they've been enrolling individuals and having them receive COVID tests. 
Mr. Stair is now involved in creating the COVID index, which he will share with us today. Taylor, over to you. All right, thank you very much and thanks for the introduction. Um, so I wanna go ahead and turn off my video and share my screen uh, so that we can see the index. Um, so let me do that real quick. Okay. Um, so this is the index. I know you're seeing that now. Excellent. Okay, so this is the COVID index. And so we wanted to show this off a little bit. This is a tool that we've been working on. Um, and this is very much um, an iterative process. Um, so there's still development work being done on this, uh, but wanted to go ahead and share this with everyone. Um, so this is actually a publicly available index. Sorry, this is actually a publicly available index. Um, and so to access this index, all you actually need right here is the covid.nmqf.us. Uh, so if you put that in your search bar, you can go to this index and use it. You do not need any credentials to use the index. Uh, but here we're um, mapping uh, COVID cases uh, across the country by zip code. The data set being used for this index is the uh, Johns Hopkins University data set. Um, and so one thing that's uh, a little unique about this index is um, I've seen you know, many, there's many mapping tools out there for COVID. Um, one thing that's a little unique with this is that um, we do have zip code uh, in the index that we're using. Um, so I can scroll over a single geography here and we will get some uh, quick summary statistics on that geography. So here we're seeing a particular geography in Illinois. So we have the population and then we're seeing uh, cases per thousand people statistic that we're using here. Um, so right away, you can see that there's several hotspots that uh, stand out and you know, Michigan in particular has been in the news as of late. Um, if we are to select a single geography, uh, we're actually given a graph here that gives us uh, the trend for that geography. So again, this is a zip code. So we can see the cases per thousand in this geography over time. And then another thing that's fairly unique about this index is that in addition to the historical data uh, going back to January 31st year 2021, we're actually uh, making an effort to project four weeks into the future on what we think will happen uh, in all of these geographies across the country uh, in the next four weeks. And so we've actually worked with a statistician named uh, Peter Congdon, who is out of Queen Mary University of London. Um, and he uses uh, the Bayesian modeling uh, for those projections. Uh, so these are projections that we uh, are continuing to tweak and trying to improve. Um, as you can imagine, trying to project this uh, into the future is you know, obviously somewhat fraught activity. We often compare it to trying to predict the weather. Uh, but we think it's an important um, activity nonetheless. Um, so I want to go ahead and so we can change our map here. So we can actually go back in time and see uh, COVID-19 as it manifests across the country, um, in this case in August, or we can project forward uh, May 23rd is as far forward as we can go. And this is uh, how that appears looking into the future. Um, so we can, we can make those adjustments. Um, we do have a couple of different filters that can be used. So in addition to cases per thousand, we can do just seven day running totals for cases. And the same thing for deaths uh, is also available here. Um, and then another feature uh, I'd like to go ahead and point out um, that I find helpful is we've got these data layers. And so we can 
lay over top of our currently aggregated data uh, these other geographies. Uh, so we have a lot of partners that work uh, in the legislative space. So I'm going to go ahead and turn on our congressional district um, overlay here. And so if we zoom into the map now, we're still seeing COVID cases by zip code, but now we've got congressional districts uh, laid on top. So now we're seeing Illinois 2 uh, is showing up here. And if I now click on this geography, we're seeing the zip code with those projections in addition to seeing uh, the historical data for the congressional district and the projections for the congressional district. Uh, so that is a feature that can be used with any of these geographies, any combination where you're aggregating here uh, by whichever geography is chosen. Uh, we can also use uh, the overlays as well. And then finally, another um, feature I'd like to point out is that we do have a top 25 ranking um, of geographies. So right now we're aggregating by zip code, and so we're ranking zip codes. Uh, we can see that Michigan does indeed fill out uh, pretty much the entire list uh, as we're seeing it now, but then we can go ahead and change. So let's use our MSA um, geography, and I'm going to turn this off real quick, and we can see how that changes uh, our results here. So now we are seeing MSAs ranked uh, top 25. And then one final thing that we can do with this tool is if we go into the filter, uh, go to the geography section, um, we can actually set um, a bottom limit limitation on population. So basically any MSA where there's at least 1.9 million uh, people would now be uh, mapped. And so this is a little, a little bulky on the uh, filter here. So I think we're actually, uh, one of the things that we'll be changing is making this a little bit more granular uh, for the adjustment, but I can now apply that. So what we're basically left with are major metropolitan areas. Uh, and so you can see how that changes our ranking. So this, this top 25 ranking will be uh, dynamic and it will react to whatever geography we're using. And then also uh, between our statistics or if, we're, if we've got a population filter in place. Um, so these are kind of the basics of the COVID index. And so we definitely hope that people will uh, go to the index and again, covid.nmqf.us uh, to access the index. And so we, we certainly hope that people take advantage of that and uh, certainly love any feedback as we continue to develop the index. Thank you so much, Taylor, for that overview. And the URL is in the chat. Um, very much appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that. And so with that, I'm going to turn to our panelists. And I would actually love to start with Dr. Wilkes um, and asking you to share um, a little bit about your patient's experience with COVID, um, especially early on in the pandemic. Dr. Wilkes. Hi, well, thank you for having me and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, let me just correct my bio. I, I served as chair of NAC. I'm not the chair elect. I'm sure it would make the current chair elect a little bit nervous thinking I'm coming back. <laughs> but it was a great honor and opportunity to serve in that capacity. Um, that most valuable tool that we call the retrospectoscope uh, would be uh, what I'm going to talk about. Looking back, you know, there's so many things that, that we would have done differently uh, in hindsight. Um, unfortunately, it is what it is, and um, 
But looking back during the height of uh, when we had the most infection going on, when monoclonal antibodies, uh, when it became apparent that they were effective, um, we missed an opportunity, I think, to make that publicly known. And um, I would not, I don't think it was done in a sinister sort of fashion. I think it was done uh, unintentionally maybe, uh, but not as much, well, not as intentionally as I think we could have been and, and should be and are, are gonna be now. Uh, you know, that expression about don't ask, don't tell. Well, if you didn't ask, then you weren't told about monoclonal antibodies. So early on, we had a lot of our patients that were presenting, uh, not so much in our center in the FQHC world where we would, well, first of all, you know, our testing was a mess in the very beginning. It was like who to test. We didn't have enough tests with the test accurate. So that was a lot of confusion. Uh, and then we started prioritizing. But as we moved into people going into, particularly in the emergency room is where we found there were problems where, and this was a, a bias that we saw, particularly in the minority community. A lot of people were presenting very, very ill to the emergency room and not being admitted or not being treated aggressively and being discharged and asked to monitor themselves. Uh, and um, by monitoring themselves, I mean, some people, uh, there was a shortage of thermometers in the beginning. There was a shortage of pulse ox for those that had, were trying to measure their oxygen levels at home. And so there were a whole lot of people that I think could have gotten treated much more aggressively. Um, even being put on oxygen at home and, 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 and steroids and inhalers and things that could have been done, that got missed. What was concerning to me was when monoclonal antibodies did become available. Um, and I, I've, I forgot what action alert I received about it finally gotten approved. So I called the local hospital and found that they had, had received it a week of, uh, prior to my calling, but they didn't know how they were gonna set it up. And this is all the while where people are still getting infected. And, um, and so uh, I know for a fact that I have several patients that there's no doubt in my mind that could have benefited from uh, receiving the infusion uh, that could have prevented hospitalization and in some cases could have prevented death. Um, as I said, uh, it's unfortunate that that happened. Uh, I share it with, uh, you know, Dr. Brigham that I participate on the Governor's Health Equity Task Force, the national uh, SEAL team, which is the Community Engagement Alliance. And we've had all these very, very aggressive out, uh, outreach marketing campaigns, communication campaigns on getting people tested and vaccinated, but we didn't use as much energy, I feel, to leverage that, that, that resource to let people know about uh, the monoclonal antibody infusions. Um, I don't know how many of you read that there was an article last week uh, in USA Today that is talking about uh, Regeneron. I think they're one of the sponsors for this session that they are now getting infusions. They're making them available in the home setting. They're making them available in, in uh, four injections rather than an infusion. Community health centers have now been put in the queue that uh, if we can get the resources, we can actually do the infusions in our centers now. So it's ramped up tremendously, but we missed, uh, uh, and it, it, I saw one quote and, and not any slight to Taylor there, but one, one of the people said that you don't need a statistician to tell you that it works. I mean, after the infusion, 
the next day, patients were texting me and I saw one person said it was like somebody had given them a happy pill. Within 24 hours, that, they made that much of a difference. And so um, uh, we can't go back, but um, I think it's a lesson learned. And, you know, as we, we can't get so focused on testing and just the vaccines, that there was an intermediate step that can still, at the moment we're speaking, could have and still can save lives. Thank you so much for that overview. And um, I was sitting here scribbling a few things. I definitely plan to ask a few follow-up questions. But I'd first love to turn to Maya Birmingham. Um, and as we're talking about COVID-19 therapeutics, we really are going to be honing in on the opportunity presented by monoclonal antibodies. So could I turn to you to ask um, that you share an overview of how the monoclonal antibodies work um, as well, knowing that Regeneron um, has really been leading the way on, on the monoclonal antibody therapeutics. Could you talk a little, about, a little bit about your trials and the process of um, ensuring that you all had diverse clinical trials to understand how they would perform in these populations? Sure, so thank you. Um, to NMQF for providing this really important opportunity. Um, you know, I always start out with a simple message, which is, you know, educate, diagnose, prescribe, and treat, um, whether it's vaccine, whether it's a monoclonal antibody. Um, you know, I have been fortunate and unfortunate enough to have lived, um, you know, both the promise of monoclonal antibodies um, as well as the um, you know the holes and the fissures that we have lived through um, during COVID that have really um, you know heightened some of the lack of education and the lack of access. Let me talk a little bit just to take a step back about monoclonal antibodies um, and and again um, speaking from a layperson's perspective. Um, uh, you know, for many, I think um, the idea or the terminology can be very daunting in terms of what a monoclonal antibody treatment is. But quite simply, um, for those of us who are not um, all steeped in the science, a monoclonal antibody, um, and in our case, it's a cocktail, so there are two um, antibodies that are basically intended to act as um, your defense to a virus. Um, and in this case, um, one hopes that a patient um, who is infected with COVID would be able to mount their own antibody um, response. But in some cases, for whatever reason, um, there are certain patients who are more vulnerable, those who have certain conditions for obese, diabetes, kidney, there are a host of other conditions that can um, frankly make your uh, immune system less likely to react when you are infected with COVID. And so in essence, what our treatment um, and what monoclonal antibodies are intended to do is to substitute or to amplify your body's um, immune response. So basically a monoclonal antibody um, is something uh, that the body um, through either an injection or an infusion um, receives in order to fight the virus. Um, and so quite simply, what you're doing there, whereas a vaccine is intended to stimulate your own body's immune response, um, in this case, if you are not vaccinated or otherwise immunocompromised, the antibodies are intended to augment your body's ability to fight off the virus. Um, and with respect to Nicolette, I think one of your questions was about clinical trial diversity. So one of the things that has been remarkable um, and quite, you know, it's both fortunate and unfortunate is that COVID has frankly 
um, hit communities of color and other underrepresented groups quite hard. Um, and in our efforts um, with our clinical trials, which focus not only on um, those who are infected, but also ace uh, those who have not been infected, but have been exposed, um, and in some cases for hospitalized patients as well, we actually um, were able to capture um, and you know, um, again, sadly enough, though, those who were infected entered into our clinical trials. And so, in fact, we had quite a bit of clinical trial diversity in our clinical trials. Um, 40 percent um, were um, uh, his, of Hispanic descent or African-American. Um, and so what we've seen has been um, a very robust representation of those who are most vulnerable right now in our clinical trials. I hope that answers your question. Please always feel free to answer um, or, or, or ask additional questions if I haven't hit the topics. No, that, that is very helpful. And um, that, that statistic is tremendous. Um, and I think as we are continuing to think about those communities that have been hardest hit, it's important to know that the, the trials were done specifically understanding how the, the monoclonals would perform in, in those individuals so that we do have confidence um, that they, they are going to be successful. Um, Taylor, I want to pull you in very quickly because um, you had a few questions that came in. And I think um, based on the questions that are coming in, I think people are, are looking at this from the vantage point of understanding how to predict um, where there may be communities that could be hit um, hard um, in the weeks to come. And so um, I'm going to try to mash up a couple of these questions into one question for you which is um, how reliable is the data in the index um, and how um, do you plan on sharing the predictive data with other jurisdictions across the nation um, for them to use in, in their understanding to date? Um, sure, yeah. So um, I think, as I said, the data itself is coming from Johns Hopkins University and so it's the, you know, the same data that's being reported out um, to everyone else. So. So that data, you know, is fine. Um, on the projections, now obviously, uh, that's where you're going to uh, question the validity and want to know, you know, how accurate are these predictions. Um, unfortunately, the, the index is relatively new, and so we don't have a lot of uh, historical projections from the index yet that we can go back on and, and show the um, how accurate those are. So that, that's something that we will continue to develop. Thank you. Um, so now I want to I want to turn to Dr. Wills for a second and and get a um, a lens into how you know you mentioned that um, you know you had to make a, a number of phone calls to figure out um, which hospitals had uh, monoclonals and when you did make those calls you found out they had them for over a week and a lot of patients um, had to ask about access to the, the therapeutics in order to know that they were available. So I'd like for you to share with us how you worked to ensure that your patients had access to the monoclonals um, as you as they became available and as you learned that that local critical access hospitals and others had access to them. Well, the um... Once again, I don't want to <clears throat> dwell too much on on the past, but I think part of the the um, misstep was that we didn't have a, a national strategy. I'll just be frank, and some of the language that was used was, um, um, you know, uh, 
Dr. Birmingham said earlier about, uh, you know, the connotation of clinical trials and what that means. When the whole operation warp speed was, was named warped, that has a whole different connotation to some of our people. Warp means it's broken, it's all bent, it's out of shape. They didn't think warp speed, Star Trek sort of like high speed. <laughs> when something was warped, that means it was deformed and rushed. And so that was a lot of cynicism uh, uh, in the beginning, um, having to explain to people the clinical trials for the vaccines as well as for the monoclonal antibodies. Uh, I know one of the most effective tools that I used was I had a post up in every exam room of Dr. Kizzy Corbett, just particularly show the African-American community, but the lead scientist that Dr. Fauci had referenced was an African-American female physician that had been working on this for years. So it wasn't like this was something that just popped up. Uh, same is true for the work that's being done that was done on monoclonal antibodies. So once we found out, I, and I, I'll give the state credit, um, Actually, if you go back, you know, when when President when Trump became infected, he got the monoclonal antibodies and gave testimony, but it never was put out there in a way that I think that could have really uh, got a lot more bang for the buck, if you will, because uh, uh, he and everyone that uh, every patient I've got, I say it's been so dramatic. But what we did was we we the state, the Louisiana Department of Health and Hospitals, made a master list of where all the centers that received the monoclonal antibodies. And that was another big question. I saw it was a question in the chat in the Q and A. Is it free? Is it bill? Yeah, it was free. It was made free and available to everyone that qualified. And the criteria, unfortunately, you know, one of the criteria, of course, is 65 and old and having comorbid uh, disease. Uh, Louisiana, probably about 90% uh, qualified just on BMI alone. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> we, we uh, are, are near the, the, the top in that list, one that we don't want to be. But if you look at the um, comorbidities, uh, so we listed all the on the website where the nearest uh, centers were. Then we started posting it in the uh, in the exam rooms. They started posting it in the emergency rooms, uh, and then we just used social media for for good rather than all this misinformation was out there and got with the faith leaders in the community, the elected officials, and just every opportunity that we had, uh, we made, uh, got the word out, you know, and um, it really did make a difference because it, it was like, and, and I had a lot of professional colleagues, I'm, I sit on a lot of boards and I, I remember having conversations with some of the trustees of some of the other institutions I sit on. and. When I kept talking about the, the monoclonal antibodies, they didn't they didn't know, and that was that was striking to me that we just had something that was so great, so rich, so meaningful, impactful, and and, and we just didn't. Um, but as I said, I think those that now we are learning and we have a a, a national strategy. I think the Biden administration is committed. Um, I think they just bought. Uh, I think from that article, uh, you know, they've made a purchase of a whole lot more of uh, monoclonal antibiotics and they're going to be uh, actually uh, making a very aggressive outreach campaign to make sure people know not, not only get tested, but if you're infected, the early, every hour counts. If we can get folks in, you know, uh, as early as we can, it's just like, when, you know, someone comes with a stroke, if we can get them in early, then we can prevent all, all this uh, heartbreak that, um, 
that uh, we've been experiencing. So um, that's kind of what we're doing right now and, and what we did then. Thank you for that. And um, as you know, as you're talking, I'm hearing opportunities. And Maya, I know you and your team have been working very hard to make sure that um, there is information being shared about um, the monoclonals, how they work, how to access them, um, and, and finding solutions. But, you know, Dr. Wilkes, your point, I think um, we can't divorce where we are now from where we were because a lot of this is building on the, the first phase of the response. And so trying to do a lot of that direct work to individual jurisdictions and states. I know it's been a big part of, of what Regeneron and, and your team have been up to. Could you shed some light on how you have been um, conducting education um, and, and, and outreach across the nation? Sure. So, so let me start with, um, you know, just a reality, right? So COVID probably amplified some of the disparities that we have in our healthcare system, as well as just basic communication, right? Um, you know, I know from the beginning, um, there are dedicated government officials who have been working on this, who are agnostic, you know, to who you are, what your, you know, what your political affiliation is. We're all in this really to ensure that, you know, the science as it was evolving was we had to problem solve, right? And a lot of that has to do with communication and education. Um, and certainly the government themselves have been trying to get the word out um, together with um, a number of different stakeholders who have been working with the, you know, on the index, through the index, through CDC to find out, you know, where are the infections, right? Um, to Dr. Wilts's point, you know, for a while, you. you you didn't know, you know, who who had COVID, who didn't. Upon diagnosis, um, you know, it's almost too too late sometimes. If you're, you know, if you're a patient um, who is diagnosed, you need to know about these education, you know, these possibilities beforehand. Um, reaching out to physicians in areas, um, you know, Taylor put up the the what we call, you know, the hotspots. Um, but really trying to target our education through social media, through um, communication paths, the television, through um, faith-based leaders, through community leaders. And that takes time and effort. And frankly, it's a constant evolving effort to make sure that you can really reach out to people and meet them where they are. And COVID has scrambled us, right? I mean, quite frankly, you know, all of us are, you know, hiding, you know, in our houses um, behind plexiglass, um, you know, whatever methods of communication that were traditional, we've had to look at those and, um, and less traditional. And so what we've tried to do together with the team from our scientists on to folks who work constantly on market access, um, on geographic access, on communications, is really try to highlight um, for patients and physicians, the, first of all, the availability of a treatment, um, the necessity of treating early, right? So um, for, for treatment, it's very important that you get treated within a certain amount of days upon diagnosis. And so what we've tried to do, working with a number of different partners, 
um, as well as the government and those the government has designated as reaching out to underrepresented groups is to really make ourselves, I mean, it's almost like a, each solution, um, you, you know, you apply it and then you have to adapt to the, to the different circumstances. If you've seen one person, you've seen one person. Um, you know, Dr. Wills can speak to this. Um, he's closer to the ground, but I know from personal experience and, um, you know, coming from a family of physicians, um, it takes a lot. Um, there are people who already know about this. When you get COVID, you're tired. You know, you really need to have a, an army of advocates for you to pick up the phone and say, okay, you got tested. Here's here's what's available to you. Should you be, fit, fit the criteria? Here's how we're gonna get you to the doctor. Here's how we're gonna get you to a site. Um, we have worked with several partners, including um, the government. We've worked with national infusion centers. We've worked with hospitals because you have to match it, right? You have to meet the patient where they are, um, try to get them to a site, get a physician who actually understands to Dr. Waltz's point is, you know, some of this information was coming out as the clinical trials were evolving. And so that's been a tremendous, you know, I know from for my um, family members who are physicians, it really was a, you know, you need to look at the data, you need to feel comfortable, you need to have confidence, then you have to actually get to the patient and help them where they are in their community, where frankly, they're isolated and they're affected. So that's a whole new thing. We had that conversation, you know, we had that conversation earlier, particularly in rural communities. You know, you would ask folks to go home and, uh, and uh, socially distant. You're talking about a family of 12 living in a one bedroom house. There's just no way that can happen. But one of the things strategy wise, um, it's a simple thing, but I think everyone that's been allotted the infusions uh, the monoclonal antibodies, if you present to that institution, an urgent care or a hospital, when you're seen and evaluated and then you're diagno diagnosed and you're positive, every patient is given discharge instructions. It would be very simple in the discharge instructions to say you've been diagnosed with COVID and you may be eligible for these uh, monoclonal antibodies if you have these criteria and these symptoms within 72 hours. That was never done with the patients that I saw that when I got the record that they had not come to us, but gone to urgent care or emergency room. And then I had to contact them. But if they were given that information on the front end at the time of diagnosis, then they would know, you know, uh, as was said, now you, now you know. So uh, then of course, it's the logistics of getting and writing the orders. Uh, you know, I, we have a, I have a colleague that's a hospitalist that does our inpatient for us now that I don't do that anymore. But um, but it's just something as simple as that. You know, everyone's given discharge instructions. You know, we have Mtala laws where you have to treat everyone that walks in the emergency room, uh, you know, and then, uh, so I think that's a simple thing that uh, can be looked at. Definitely, I, I know there's been a lot of effort to put every solution that, that can be brought to bear um, up. So I think that's definitely something that um, can, can be explored. Um, I wanna touch on that, that cost and availability question because I think that's something else that lingers. And I think um, that's another one of those lingering impacts from the earlier phases of the response. I think providers, we've, we've heard expression from providers that they're hesitant to offer solutions. 
um, or offer a path to a therapeutic that may not be there um, or a patient may not be able to afford. So, so could you two just speak to the cost of the, the monoclonal antibody treatment um, as well as the availability of the products across the nation? So I, I can take part of that, and I think Dr. Welts will be um, far more uh, adept at answering some of the practicalities of it. But what I will say is um, it, it may not be well known that the therapy itself is free to all, um, all patients. Um, the services that are associated with the delivery of the monoclonal antibodies are often covered um, in some instances. Um, by um, either Medicare, depending on if you are a Medicare patient. Um, there are, in many cases, um, if there's commercial insurance, um, many, um, and we wish more, um, commercial insurers have made it clear that they will waive copay. Um, and then there are efforts underway to ensure that there, that there is robust reimbursement, because as you can imagine, um, infusions require um, uh, you know, medically trained professional, um, and certainly, you know, whereas it, it, it may be less complicated to uh, administer a vaccine, but the infusion itself um, requires a medically trained professional, but should not be complicated, quite frankly. With robust reimbursement, these are things that are, you know, these are infusions that are provided to cancer patients and many other kinds of um, patients. And so, the, the trick is getting it all right, right? Get, getting the patient educated, the physician educated, getting the patient to a site. Um, and you mentioned the supply. There is ample supply. Um, the issue really now is frankly, um, really hitting at all cylinders the patient journey um, and making sure that the patient um, has a site that is accessible. And many of us are working very hard to meet patients where they are, um, because we know how difficult, even under the best of circumstances, it can be, um, it, you know, when you're not tired, when you're, you know, not isolated, um, to find um, a, a site that can administer. And so the government, several stakeholders, um, I know um, the FQHCs, we're all working very hard um, at solutions. And Dr. Wilson mentioned as well, home infusion is also an option that we are um, really trying to um, ensure is available for those patients who can't otherwise um, reach a site. A critical component of our team is the um, patient navigators and the community health workers. Um, um, I think all, all of us that work in FQHCs, uh, we, if we don't have a formal degree, we have a street degree in social work because that's uh, a large, a large part of what we have to do and help help patients navigate. Uh, when they present themselves, I always tell my providers, it's not if you're going to treat them, but how you're going to process and, and get them through the the, the, the maze sometimes. Uh, but that's invaluable. Find them, locate them make the logistics. We have a robust referral department that uh, takes into consideration transportation uh, and all the other social determinants of how we can get them there. And we have not had an issue with um, getting the infusions. And uh, just like the vaccines, you know, there's a, a allowable administration fee for uh, administering, but the, the vaccines are free, just like the infusions are free. Uh, and uh, we have not encountered that as a, uh, as a barrier uh, so far. We're, we're blessed we're in a uh, um, Medicaid expansion state and um, 
the governor has been, um, and I've publicly said it and I'll say it again, you know, I, I, for the vaccine rollout, the governor was very intentional in, in, in stating that he wanted um, the elderly and, and, and the African-American population and the most vulnerable population to be at the front of the line. And I, you know, in the salesmanship of trying to get people to take the vaccine, I've had to tell folks that it's one of the few times in American history that minority groups have been placed uh, at the front of the line to get the benefits of therapeutics. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's up to, you know, to us to convince people to take advantage of that opportunity. Nicolette, I wanted to mention something that I think Dr. Wiltz really hit the nail on the head. The question isn't if, it's how, right? And I think we all have to take that responsibility. Um, I know for myself, I've dealt with, um, you know, people who are tired, they want to crawl back in bed, they start to feel better, and then they, you know, their situation really turns um, to the worst. And I've had some heartbreaking stories, and I've had some really good ones that, you know, have ended up with literally like one person who, you know, a day later was mowing the lawn, and, you know, had to call the call the spouse and say, are you sure this person should be mowing the lawn? I've also had those heartbreaking stories where, you know, you have advocates who are just, um, you know, the answer can't be no for those who are appropriately prescribed, right? Um, and I think we all have that responsibility um, as, you know, fellow human beings to really think through, you know, what is it from the patient's perspective that they need? and to just keep knocking on that door. I've had to do it. I called myself personally for people where I just said, you know, here's your testing center, here's a site, you know, and I've tried to do it for the calls that I've received. Um, and I know, you know, so many of our teams have been dedicated to doing that. Um, you know, you can only get to so many people and the hope is, is that, you know, it really will take a village, but, um, you know, I, I, I wanted to just highlight what Dr. Wilt said, which is, it, it's not, you know, will you, it's how. And, and that's a really important, you know, problem solving approach to take. No, um, I, I totally agree with that. And I'm really glad that you highlighted that because um, as you two were speaking, um, I, I've found that a lot of our, our questions and, and hesitations, you know, is there enough product? Um, you know, is, is there an, an, a way to make sure that patients are aware? There are a lot of things that, um, it, is there a cost? Um, a lot of those initial concerns have been alleviated by the measures that have been taken, but the question becomes, how do we make sure that every step of the pipeline, whether it's at the systems level, and um, Dr. Wiltz, I love your comment about the discharge papers. Um, I want to th spend some time thinking about other things that are systems-wide that we could begin to implement, because as we've talked about it'll be a 50 state solution so we'll have to work with every state to be able to do this but that's one piece of it how do we make sure this easier on providers you know we talk about the the impact of covid um on the last year on us as society but you know no no single profession has been more impacted by this pandemic than providers so how do we make it easy for them how are we um, making sure that that how is translated to them in a way that doesn't also translate to added burden and then how do we do the same thing for patients? And you both have pointed out one very important component of this. Once someone is COVID-19 positive, they're also very fatigued. So you're also dealing with someone who either in that midst of fatigue has to advocate for themselves or has a loved one who in the midst of their own fear and concern for their loved one 
has to advocate for them. So I, I see it as a number of steps along the way, but I, I want to start with the systems level. If we are looking at solutions, and um, you know, Maya's heard me say this a few times, in some ways on the disaster side, it's a 50 state whack-a-mole, which means that if you do it once, you got to do it you know, 49 other times for it to actually roll out across the nation. So how do we start with a systems level approach to actually looking at what could be done and implemented across the nation to address that how. Dr. Waltz, I will let you go first since I've been going first and then I will comment as well. <laughs> There's a line from the movie Shrek when he says, that's the story of my life. That's, that's like the, I've been, I've been harping on this for 40 years uh, of having a state strategy. I mean, having a national strategy and then a state strategy because without, the backstop of the federal government, you know, civil rights have never been in, 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 uh, implemented. If you have to have a national leadership strategy, uh, I know early on in the pandemic, when our uh, then the state strategy, the governor made the decision to shut down all the schools. It wasn't going to be 64 counties independently saying each one are going to do this. He shut it all down, you know. And so having that uniformity and consistency, I think, made a big difference because it was a policy that got implemented, uh, you know, uh, on, that, on that level. Uh, local, you know, knowing the local, uh, the, the, I have the most respect for the, you know, local folks, uh, local elected officials, because um, having, I was actually had the honor of being a, a county commissioner at, at one point in my career. And people know where you live. <laughs> They know where you worship. They know how to put their hands on you. So, uh, you know, that, that that granularity is something that uh, I think at the end of the day, we had a, you know, I'll just give you an example, we had a big surge for the vaccinations. Now we're getting more granular, I mean, call it guerrilla warfare. And I'm sure you all have heard that the Biden administration is now making monies available in the Labor Department to hire canvases to go door to door. It's almost like the census. Now we're going door to door to try to get people. Uh, I was on a call the other day and patients, and then and this, these are the conversations I have with my patients. You know, it's not only the medical side, but as both of you said, it's the cost. So someone heard, but it's never been put out on how to access it, that FEMA will reimburse for funeral expenses. You know, so on that call, we actually had someone that posted and put the whole information on how they can go even apply for this. Uh, you know, and it's been out for a few weeks now, but it's just those simple little things that people, you know, I kind of heard about monoclonal antibodies, you know, but they don't know how to, how to go about doing it. And so, um, and it shouldn't be the advocacy where we have to one-on-one -on -one do it. it, it it's, we've got to figure out a way. So to answer your question, uh, Nicola, I, I, there has to be a national strategy. There has to be a state strategy. The way I've approached it is we deal with the community on the local level. Um, you know, we know we know our folks. That's all I can say is the community health center world. You know, I know Pope Francis just a, he made a statement that, you know, I know my flock, they know my voice, but you got to even know how they smell. You got to get up close and personal to really know uh, how to reach people that you're trying to reach. And um, so it's. it's it's not so much a disconnect. I know Maya, Maya and I had the conversation earlier about, you know, the, the national policy sometimes as well intended, 
is how they implement it at the local level. And I think if you get that feedback, uh, then we can be a, a really tremendous part of the, 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 the process to help affect the change that I think the national policymakers are trying to do. Uh, I, I use the example, we get a lot of grants. We get a grant in FQHC world that comes to the local board of directors and 51% consumers. One of our partner agencies is Community Action Head Start. They get a grant. The USDA gets, all these folks get grants that come from Washington down to the local level, but we don't always communicate amongst ourselves in a way that we should, that we can leverage and coordinate uh, a lot better. So that's my soapbox and I'll get off that. And I, and I think, Nicolette, to your point, Dr. Wilson's point, so the, the national government can help with resourcing, with um, supply, right? They can help with education, um, but then it, it is up to the, to the states to some um, extent to amplify, right, in terms of education. Um, you know, giving, for example, the NIH just issued guidelines on monoclonal antibodies. Um, I know for many physicians, right, that might have been a bit of a bar because you're, if you're not aware of the information that is out there and the clinical um, evidence that is really, you know, the responsible way to go, which is to look at the clinical evidence and figure out what's right for your patient at the local level, you need to have that communication from a centralized place going all the way down um, to the physicians who are treating and to the patient. So that's number one, is just understanding, you know, the tremendous evidence. In our case, for Regencov, right, our clinical studies, which take time, right? It's not like you just snap your fingers and you know the answer. Um, you know, we were able to reduce um, hospitalizations and progression of disease by 70 to 71% um, in, in the eligible populations. Um, until you hear that number, you may not understand what, what the promise may be. Um, then there's the question of tailoring. To Dr. Wilson's point is, you know, we, we may use it information and vocabulary that may not resonate, right? And so you really have to think through that. Um, similarly, hearing from physicians from different sites of, you know, here's the supply, where's the patient? How do you get it there? How do you pay for the services that are associated with um, either, you know, on IV and then hopefully at some point, um, Dr. Wiltz mentioned subcutaneous, right? Um, a, a different kind of administration where a patient may be able to receive drug through a subcutaneous presentation as opposed to an IV. Well, you know, all of those steps, all of those questions of, you know, how do you get the patient through the system? How do you make sure that the prescribers are aware? How do you make sure that the patient and the prescriber know where to go? And then how do you pay for it? Um, you know, I think what we what we found is, to your point about whack-a-mole, is we're, we're starting to put together different situations based on um, or different solutions based on the situation, it's always helpful to have a construct to start with, which is here's the patient, here's the doctor, here's how we're gonna pay for it, here's the supply, and matching all those things up at the local level because that's where the patient is going to receive it. Um, so in many ways, you know, the government can help, but then you need local leaders, local um, people who are on the ground to really tailor the situation um, going back to the how right, is, you know, what works for one person, we hope you can take those lessons learned, but then you're going to have to tailor it to someone who may not be able to get out of bed or someone who may have transportation, but, you know, has to come in at nine o'clock at night instead of eight o'clock. So all of those things, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're 
at, at heart scientists, but we have learned that, you know, um, we have to make it accessible. And, and that's where we, you know, are trying our very best. And so many of our teams and other stakeholders are working 24-7, trying to, to bridge that gap. So I've been taking tons of notes and, and the part that I continue to um, stare at is the vocabulary that um, resonates. And um, I love, love that um, analogy of, of CHCs, not just knowing their people, but knowing their smell. <laughs> so um, going to use that going forward. Um, so now thinking about the provider perspective here and thinking about the, the providers that um, have been at the front lines working through COVID um, and now are being put in this position where they may not be as resourced to have really adept navigators and social workers that are assisting. Um, they may see a lot of places where um, patients may be eligible, but there aren't enough handoffs to allow for them to make the recommendation or make sure it's in the discharge papers and trust that um, you know someone else will pick up the baton. How do we make it easier for them? What what could we collectively, um, what can we push states to do um, to make it easier for those providers who um, may now be aware of, of the promise of these monoclonal antibodies, um, but may not have all of those resources accessible to make sure that they can make that rec recommendation and then move patients to, to the next um, you know, support or next navigator? Well, I, I can speak to, you know, the navigators and uh, again, with the assumption that a lot of our um, information may be available online. Um, it's also available through their number of websites, combatcovid.org, their Regeneron has um, resources as well. Um, to, so to your point, I think some of it is trying to find whatever media you can to help um, prescribers and patients and sites link up. Um, there are also a number of stakeholders and the government has been working on a, a locator with respect to, to the sites. Um, I can't speak as, you know, um, uh, cogently to, you know, what does one do at the ground? Because I know um, Dr. Wilts and others probably have a better sense of here's what happens in terms of staffing and all of those. But certainly I know there's an acute awareness of the need to help support physicians um, and administration sites in bridging that gap. Um, and, you know, we're all ears as always. Um, I think that policymakers are also looking for solutions, but part of it is hearing from the, you know, the sites, the treating physicians, et cetera, as to what they need. And so I, I defer a little bit to Dr. Welts here, where he probably has a better sense of what the day-to-day, -day, um, what you need, because you've done it um, and done it well, I think. Well, well, part of it, you know, I think is introducing the vernacular on a national level. Uh, and in the beginning, as you know, uh, and, and I'm sure Taylor knows this, we were not collecting data the way we should have as far as race and ethnicity. Um, even on the, the Centene study that I was on a panel earlier when we were doing testing, that was a challenge. And then I know in the state of Louisiana, the governor mandated that we would include that data so we can, you can't manage what you can't measure. So we, we had to make sure if we were being intentional, what was the baseline? Every time I see the, the, the national statistics that get, get, keep getting put up, 
and everyone uh, speaks to it. These are the number of new cases, the number of people on ventilators, the number of deaths. If there was some space in that place that talked about, you know, people receiving the infusion, then it would be, you know, we would get indoctrinated to saying, hey, you know, I think at one point we were looking at how many people recovered from COVID as the statistic. Well, let's make an intentional space on the on the, on the chart to talk about monoclonal antibody infusions. And then when, you know, the, the governor or whoever's gonna, when people are giving their press conferences, you know, they need to continue to say that and talk about it to, to build the, the public consciousness of, of it. And uh, and then um, it's a campaign. It's, it's a campaign like the other campaigns. So we've got to be able to do that. And then um, and one of the first things that we did actually, because um, when I became aware of it, uh, the monoclonal antibodies, then the uh, referring orders that had to be written um, there was a, the hospitals in New Orleans, the major hospital there, had already had developed the, the referral order sheet on what that looked like, you know, and the criteria. And so we just adapted uh, that form, if you will, and then got the process going. We figured out the workflow, what needs to happen and how to schedule the patients and, and, and get that done. And, and then we started getting more and more. Um, we don't have a pure health information exchange system uh, we're working on. It's not, it's not as robust and, and uh, as it should be, but as to uh, uh, Birmingham's uh, point earlier, you know, time is of the essence. And if you get out that window, then that that's tragic in and of itself. So being timely information and reacting to it and knowing the logistics. Uh, but I think we need to have a more national conversation and, and start monitoring, measuring, and uh, um, we can we can reach them, you know. We can we can we can we can get to them. I, I describe what we do as marrying high tech with high touch. We know how to touch them. You give us the technology, we'll get to them. We're doing remote patient monitoring devices. We're doing a whole lot of things right now that we didn't do before, that are engaging people on on a, in a really much more meaningful way. You know, it's one thing for you to come in in my office every three months, get your blood pressure taken. It's something different if you're doing home blood pressure monitoring and I'm getting a log with your average, which is much more meaningful than, than just a one isolated reading, if that makes sense. So uh, we're, we're getting there. I think we can get there. I do think we can get there. And I just want to take a second and thank you both for your contributions to this work, to the pandemic. And certainly thank you for spending the last hour um, talking with us all. I feel like I could spend the next two or three hours just talking with you and, and working through a plan of how to do this. But I do also believe that we can get there um, and really um, appreciate your contributions, your recommendations. and you um, also making sure that as you all are doing this work across your teams that you're creating opportunities for others to partner with you in this because it truly will take all of us. So thank you so much. And I turn thank it you. back to the organizers.